0: Good morning this morning. Nobody? Man. It's always a guessing game who's going to speak back to me. Good morning. Welcome to Mission Church. We're excited that you have joined us today as we seek to worship Jesus in all that we do. Uh, my name is Pastor Justin. I'm one of the pastors here at Mission Church. Pastor Eric is taking a much needed weekend off to go. For to camp for courageous kids with his family as they do at least once a year sometimes twice but they are they are traveling along with a few other of our members that are traveling but those of us are who are here and those of us who call mission church our church home welcome thank you we're extremely glad that you are here on top of that a special thank you to ryan and becca for traveling up from nashville to lead us in worship this morning it was awesome uh, really want to say thank you to you in front of everyone. Uh, a friend of the Axis Church is always a friend of ours, so come back anytime. Um, just kick us out of here. Kick Eric off of the mic and start singing. It's fine. Um, this week, we will continue through the book of Matthew, our sermon series called King and Kingdom. As Trevor has just read, we'll be looking at chapter 17, verses 14 through 27. If you haven't already, Please turn there. If you do not have a Bible, there should be one close to you. If you do not own a Bible, please take that with you as our gift to you. We would love for you to have it. Now, something we always do here at Mission, before we just parachute in or helicopter into a text, is we always want to give at least a brief context of where we are in Scripture. We don't want to just jump in and take something the wrong way or preach it the wrong way. Today's is actually quite easy, though. All you have to do is continually keep in mind and remind yourself that this is happening immediately after Jesus has just shown himself to be God Almighty himself. That Jesus has just transfigured himself to the disciples and shown himself to be who he truly was all along and revealed that to the disciples. And then he is coming down the mountain. He is recondescending condescending to human beings. He has come once incarnate. And then now he is recondescending from that mountain, from his transfiguration to a bunch of unbelieving, faithless as we will see, crowds and people that are just wanting to see a show or a trick. We just need to keep that in mind. This is just another example of Jesus' perfect patience with those people and us. Jesus' perfect mercy towards us when we forget. Jesus' perfect grace towards us when we doubt. And when we have the wrong mentality and the wrong heart behind things, he shows us much grace even when he is coming down from a mountain showing himself to be God. Okay, so Jesus has come down off the mountain and immediately, there's no transition here, it seems like he stepped off the last rock of that mountain and someone came running up to him with a problem. This seems to be a common theme, people just come to Jesus as they should but they just come to Jesus with their issues, with their pains, with their trials. This is just another example of that. Now remember though, the nine stayed down at the bottom of the mountain. They, are, they have been with these people the whole time. This is, this is who has forgotten what the or not sorry not got to see I'm sorry what the other three got to see in person but they have they have been with Jesus for two and a half years now and they were unable to do what Jesus is about to do we see the man basically throw throw them under the bus He comes to Jesus begs him for mercy please heal my son and Jesus says something exasperated and says how much longer am I gonna have to deal with this didn't I leave nine disciples down here and that guy immediately throws them under the bus. Yeah, I, brought, I tried that. They, they are idiots and they couldn't do it. So Jesus, again, exasperated, calls the crowd faithless. He asks the rhetorical question. How long am I going to have to deal with this? Have you not seen who I am? Have I not shown all of you, including the disciples, who I truly am? And again, we just see the patience of the Lord here as he heals the boy, even though We're not even sure how many believers were in that crowd. It doesn't say. The disciples were there. We assume they're getting it. But we don't know if any of the other people were true believers in Jesus or if they just needed something from him. So later, the disciples, when they're kind of alone and with Jesus, ask why they have been unsuccessful at casting out this demon. Here's the second reference to faith in this text. He says, "...because of your little faith to the disciples." And then he follows that with the third reference of faith when he says, if you would just have the faith of a mustard seed, I was going to bring one. I didn't. Just imagine a really small seed. If you have the faith of a mustard seed, then you could have done this. And furthermore, literally everything is possible. Nothing is impossible if you simply have the tiniest amount of faith. So we move from the faithless crowds who just want a trick to the small ineffective faith of his very own disciples who again have been with him for almost three years now they should know better and then to a faith that is in comparison even smaller than that in the tiniest analogy Jesus has available to him that people would understand the smallest seed known back then the mustard seed he references that Now the disciples do offer an interesting question here though this is not invalid They ask, why couldn't they cast out the demon? If we turn back, we're not going to turn there because it's short, but Matthew chapter 10 verse 1, it says, And he called to him the twelve disciples, and he gave them authority over the unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. So clearly we see here that the disciples weren't trying to do something they weren't supposed to, and Jesus is rebuking them. Jesus has granted them the power to do these things, and they have been doing them from chapter 10. And they will continue to do them even after Jesus ascends. This is not something that Jesus is rebuking. Hey, leave this one to me. He has given them this power and now he tells them that if only you would have faith. This small. If only you would have faith. Anything is is possible to you including casting out this demon up to moving a mountain from point A to point B. Now here is where many pastors and I'm going to use that term very loosely, would use this to go into a long, eloquent diatribe of the quintessential need for faith and the necessity of it. And if you would just sow a faith seed to my ministry by calling the toll-free number at the bottom of the screen, the Bible tells you it will come back a hundredfold because faith makes everything possible. If you just believe when you send me this money, if you just believe when you sow this seed of faith, then right here, God wants to give you a full and abundant life, which is in the Bible. God wants to to increase hundreds fold. That's in the Bible. He wants to give you your best life now. That's not in the Bible. This is where you can see the health, wealth, I'm not naming names, health, wealth, and prosperity gospel of our day rear its ugly head. This is where people are duped out of their money, duped into thinking they are faithful Christians or thinking they are believers or thinking they are doing what God has called them to do or thinking they are being obedient. And they'll say things like, "If you just believe, if you just believe, God will move your mountains." I Googled that this week, just to see. And if I'd wanted to preach that sermon, I'd have had plenty of material let's just put it that way. I wouldn't have to work very hard because I would just listen to one, said what they said, dropped the mic, and went home. There was plenty of "God can move your mountain sermons online. There weren't very many about the fish thing that we'll get to here in a little bit, interestingly enough. but there were plenty of this one. God can move your mountains. And this is where God gets turned into Oprah when she does her favorite things episode and just starts handing stuff out, and everybody gets school districts and humpback whales and whatever else that they want. If you just believe, you can have anything you want. If you just believe, name it, claim it, blab it, grab it, declare it, don't share it. There are all kinds of these phrases that I'm not making up right here on the spot. They are out there. Name it, claim it, it's yours. Turn on the TV on a Sunday morning. And go to the right channels, that is, and you will hear these messages. And you can see how this text can easily be distorted to say something that it does not say. And I'm not even that good at it. These people are professionals at manipulation and changing what God's word has said. And it works, it tricks many people into thinking things that are not true. But let's look at something here. Let's look at it biblically. <laughs> Remember that there are three forms of faith here. There's no faith, the faithless crowds. There's the little faith that the disciples seem to have. And then there is the mustard seed faith. He differentiates all three here. But you see, he never accuses the disciples of not having any faith, right? He doesn't say you couldn't cast out the demon because you don't have any faith. He says it's because you have little faith. But then, he goes on to compare... That anything is possible if you just have this much faith, and seems to say it takes even less than what the disciples have. The tiniest amount that I can give an analogy for, Jesus is saying, that's how much it takes. And it says the disciples had a little, so is it, what is it? Is it, they didn't have enough, they didn't even have a mustard seed's worth? Do I need a lot of faith? Do I need a little faith? Do I need even a tinier amount of faith? It begs the question here. It almost seems contradictory. It seems like the disciples had enough faith, but it still didn't work. And then Jesus tells them, if only you had had this much. And here is what we need to get this morning. We need to get this. Jesus is not concerned with the amount of faith He is concerned with the object of your faith. We have to get that. It is not an amount. It is not a measuring cup of faith that we have to have a certain amount in a recipe to equal belief, to equal Christianity, to equal salvation. It is the object of our faith. Look what happens when the man brings his son to Jesus and kneels before him begging for mercy, saying, Jesus, you're the only way. I've tried other methods. You are the only way. He begs him for mercy. I have nothing to offer you, Jesus. I do not deserve this. I did not earn this. I have not merited this. There is nothing I bring you other than my sick boy. Please do something. Without hesitation. Jesus heals his son. It's not the amount of faith that matters. It is the object of our faith that matters it is who we believe in that can move the mountains, not how much we believe in all other things. So, we ask the question then, why couldn't the disciples do this if they did have a small amount of faith, as Jesus said, a, a little faith? But look at what they really asked. Read that very closely. It says, why couldn't we cast it out? Why couldn't we do this? They were focused on themselves. They were focused on their own ability, their own power, their own strategies, their own processes. They've been doing this for seven chapters at this point. They had apparently gotten pretty arrogant and cocky about it and thought it was the process that healed or what they said that healed or the perfect ability in themselves that healed. I can can just imagine all nine of them after the first one, or I guess eight, after the first one failed, pushing his way to the front, let me at him, I got this, I'll take care of this one, just you, Simon, or you, Thaddeus, or you, Bartholomew, you, you just don't know what you're doing, let me take care of this, and every one of them failing, time after time after time, they had forgotten the object of their faith, they had begun believing in themselves and their own abilities, it wasn't that they had such small amount of faith, they had faith in a small object, namely themselves, They had faith in their ability doesn't matter if they had had a ton of faith in their ability it would not have worked because they had forgotten the object of their faith so then that goes back to the prosperity gospel and that begs the question if we really have faith in Jesus and we truly believe in him for our salvation then why can't we also get a Ferrari out of the deal Why can't we also get health, wealth, and prosperity out of the deal? Why can't we get millions of dollars out of it? Or, you know what, why can't we get something less flashy? Like, I just want to get out of debt. I just want my house paid off. I just want to be able to pay my electric bill next month. Why can't we get things like that out of it? God says he's going to give you the full and abundant life, right? It's in there. It does say that. So why can't we have both? Why can't we have faith in Jesus and get these things? To answer that question, I want you to turn a few pages over to Luke chapter 9. This is a parallel verse as you turn there. It's Luke 9, 1 and 2. This is parallel to Matthew chapter 10 when Jesus grants the ability to the disciples to go and cast out these demons and to heal these people. This is the, the same passage in Luke. And we're going to read it very closely. Luke 9, 1 and 2. It says, And he called the twelve together, and he gave them power and authority over all demons, and to cure Diseases. Okay, verse one, Jesus gives the ability to heal. Same as we read before, right? Verse two, and he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal. In verse two, what do we see? We see what does he send them to do? Proclaim the kingdom of God while you're doing it. Heal some people. Use that as a tool. People are going to come to you. They're going to need. Sick. They're going to have sicknesses. They're going to be afflicted. They're going to have demons. They're going to have all of these things. Use that as a tool, but what? To proclaim the kingdom of God, not to proclaim your ability to do it. Doctors can do that. Magicians of the day could do that. Soothsayers, essential oils, Zija plexus, whatever you use, can do that. It can make you feel better. I don't know if it casts out demons, I haven't seen that one yet, but it seems it does everything else. All right, so, it's not proclaiming that ability. It's proclaiming the kingdom of God. Jesus sent them out with an even greater mission, with tools to accomplish that mission, to minister to people, to heal them in their their times of trial. Look a couple verses down in verse 6. And they departed and went through the villages, preaching the gospel, and healing everywhere. They went out preaching the gospel. It seems like maybe in Matthew 17 they had forgotten this first part. And they were just going out healing. In the original language, whatever comes first is of utmost importance. So if your goal, at that point, reading that passage, if your goal is to go proclaim the kingdom, preach the gospel, and to heal and you've got to forget one of those two things. It's always the healing. You never forget the first one. You never forget that the utmost important mission you are on is not to make people feel better. It is to proclaim the kingdom of God, to preach the gospel. Whether they get healed or not is irrelevant if they don't know Jesus. Matthew 17, it appears they've gotten their priorities mixed up. seems their faith is in the wrong place. Now, please hear me before we get too far. Don't get it twisted. It's, I'm not preaching a poverty gospel either, so don't think I'm telling everybody to go give away everything. I might be, or better yet, Jesus might be, but I'm not using that as a blanket. We, we should all be poor. What I am asking is are, are we, whatever this is for you, are you, are we, am I stewarding God's gift rightly? And that could be money. That could be your house. That could be influence. That could be power. You name it. Literally everything is under the the guidance of this proclamation. Proclaim the gospel. Use whatever God has given you or whatever God hasn't given you as a tool of doing that. Are we prioritizing correctly as we see in Luke 9, 6? Because in this room, I don't don't want to know any of y'all's bank accounts but God is going to bless some people with a lot of money because he knows that that money will be used rightly for his kingdom some of us are never gonna have a whole lot of money because he knows that not having a lot of money will be used rightly for his kingdom or he knows that if you do have a lot of money you won't use it rightly for his kingdom it is all about him it is all about his glory It's not about the amount but about the heart behind the amount We've seen that theme in Matthew the entire time. God is less concerned about the actions, more concerned about the heart behind those actions. See, Jesus knew here that the disciples had forgotten their first love. They had forgotten the source of the power they were yielding. They had forgotten to give credit where credit is due. Listen to me closely. Jesus couldn't care less. Couldn't care less less about who actually cast out the demon. He is immensely concerned with who gets the glory for the demon being cast out. Jesus couldn't care less how many zeros are at the end of your bank account. He is immensely concerned with who gets the glory with the money going in and coming out of your bank account. Does that make sense? I Just nod and say yes. If, or no, if it doesn't, I'll repeat it. He's not concerned with those things. It's the heart. It's who gets the glory. It's proclaiming the gospel and spending money. It's proclaiming the gospel and going to help the sick. It's proclaiming the gospel and helping the poor. It's proclaiming the gospel and drinking your orange juice in the morning. It's proclaiming the gospel and apparently paying your taxes. It's all of these things wrapped up into the command and the great commission of take the gospel to the people and use whatever I've given you or not given you for that mission. See, Jesus both gives and takes away, but it is all for his glory. He is reminding them, he's reminding us, it is not, it's never about the gifts. It is always about the giver of those gifts. Whatever those gifts are, whether it's healing and demon oppression or money in the bank, it is all about Jesus He reminds them it is not about the amount of faith, but the object, the smallest amount of genuine faith in the true and better healer, in the true and better law, in the true and better prophets like we saw last week. That's what can move mountains. Not faith in something we have made up. It is not faith in the Jesus not of the Bible. It is faith in this Jesus. That is what moves mountains. Now don't get it twisted again. This does not mean that we sit on our couch and do nothing. It does not mean that God has not called us into the fray, into action. The Bible is very clear. Some dude named James says something, right? Faith without works is what? Dead. It's no longer faith anymore if it doesn't call you to do something, but doing it for the gospel, for the kingdom, to proclaim that word. We still go out and work for the kingdom. You notice in Matthew 10, and Luke 9, he doesn't say, okay, I'm going to give you this power, you can cast out demons, you can heal the sick, you can do all of these things, but don't worry, I got it. I'll take care of it. You got the power, but don't use it. No, he sends them out to do it, right? This, there's much action. He's just saying, I will take care of it, I'll just use you to do it. He graciously allows us to be a part of his plan to carry that message out, to carry that mission out. So, as we go, we take a faith with us that is aware of our own inadequacy, that is aware that we offer nothing, that is aware we are powerless over our own sin, much less anyone else's. We are powerless over our own bodies that are going to get sick, but we know the one who is powerful over those things. This is the faith that moves mountains. This is the faith that actually accomplishes anything in this world. It is not about us. Now, I find it interesting when people do this, and I'm not saying it's always wrong, but when people try to identify with certain people in biblical stories, right? I'm David, i got to take on my sin, called Goliath, and it's not what that's about. Okay, David equals Jesus, spoiler alert. Okay, first thing first, we're never Jesus in any story. Jesus never uses an analogy about himself to go, okay, now this is to show you who you are. I'm Jesus is always Jesus in a story. So in this story, we can... We're not him, okay? Most of the time, though, we look at this story and we go, okay, we're the disciples. We're supposed to go out and steward God's gifts, whatever He has given us to proclaim the mission. I've just spent 20 minutes saying that that is true. I stand by that. It is still true. But nobody ever goes, I'm the begging man that has a son that he can't do anything about. That's me. And that's the right interpretation here. We are that guy. We offer nothing. May we never cease to kneel at the feet of Jesus and beg Him for mercy, beg Him for grace, knowing we have nothing to give Him in return other than our sin. We have nothing to earn it, nothing to merit it. It is all about grace, it is all about faith, and it's the faith that He has granted to us to believe in Him that gives us any leg to stand on, gives us any hope in anything. We must rely on Jesus and only Jesus We must be diligent to ensure that we are only believing in the Jesus offered here in the Scriptures, in the Gospels. The Jesus of the Bible, as we saw last week in the video that we showed, not every Jesus is a saving Jesus in today's culture. It is only this Jesus that is a saving Jesus. May we be diligent to believe in this one. But as we believe... May we be diligent in making sure that we are holy, completely, and totally 100%, not 99.9 and I'll take care of the .1, Jesus. 100% dependent on him who saves. Because it is only through Jesus that any of that is possible. The new Hebrides uh, islands are a set of islands that most of you have probably never heard of. I had not until a couple days ago. It's an island. They're off the northwest coast of Scotland. They were discovered in 1606 But they were basically just identified as existing at that point. Oh, there's some islands up there, cool. There was apparently, according to any records anywhere, there was no Christian influence there at all, any, zero, until about 1839 when two guys by the name of John Williams and James Harris were sent there as missionaries to the native people of those islands. Nothing was really known about them. They just knew there were people there and they hadn't heard the gospel. So we're going to go. I respect that. Then minutes you heard me correctly minutes after their boats hit the shore and they got out to go proclaim the good news to these people they were killed and eaten by the natives success they heard the go- I don't know if they I hope they heard the gospel as they were being cut up I don't know but we know that it did not go according to plan okay 29 years later a missionary named James I'm sorry, John G. Patton felt called to go back there and proclaim the gospel to these people that have just killed these two missionaries minutes after they got off the boat. Clearly, people were telling him not to go. There's an article, you can look it up online. Just go type, you will be eaten by cannibals and it'll take you to this guy's story because that's what everyone was telling him. Hey, don't Just leave them alone. They're going to kill you and eat you. But he felt called and through the skepticism and through all of that, he went and then he got eaten too. I'm just kidding. What if that was to drop the mic? He got eaten. See, let's pray. Okay, I wouldn't be telling this story if he got eaten also. He went and he had much success, okay? We'll fast forward through the story. He had much success. There, was, there were conversions. He was translating the Bible into their languages. He was learning their culture. He had given his life to these people. He moved there. He lived there with his wife until she passed away much later. And then he remarried and moved back. He gave his life to these people, learning their culture, learning their language. He was in the process of translating the Bible into their native tongue, and he realized that they had no native word for believe in. So he's translating the Gospel of John, which talks much about believing in Jesus, and he didn't know how to convey that thought to them in their tongue. So he was talking with his translator one day, And he he had been converted and he, you know, they could converse in both languages. And one day he was sitting in his chair and he asked his translator, what am I doing? His translator said in his native tongue, you're sitting in your chair. So then he picked up both of his feet and leaned back in the chair and he said, now what am I doing? And the translator said, you are leaning your whole weight upon your chair. And he had his translation for believe in. This is what he used as he translated the rest of the Bible. Every time believe in Jesus, it was lean your whole weight upon Jesus. That is what Jesus is reminding us of in this passage. We must never forget that we always have to lean our entire weight upon Jesus. If we start leaning on ourselves, we fail, just like the disciples did. But it is through that very faith that he gives us that he also adopts us as sons and daughters into his family. He doesn't just stop there by giving us faith to believe in him, but he adopts us into his family, his imperfect family that is being perfected to the other side of heaven. He adopts us in and accepts us in because of that faith. Let's look at verses 24 through 27 in Matthew chapter 17. Sorry, not Luke. When they came to Capernaum, the collectors of the two drachma tax went up to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the tax? He said, yes. Of course, Peter spoke up. And when he came into the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? From who do kings of the earth take toll or tax? From their sons or from others? And when he said from others, Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. However, not to give offense to them, go to the sea, cast a hook, take the first fish that comes up, and when, you're, when you open its mouth, you will find a shekel Take that and give it to them for me and for yourself. So if you're like me, you read this, you, <laughs> you have lots of questions. It's a weird story about a fish and a shekel. What does that even mean? We really won't get into that a whole lot this morning. But here's the skinny. Jesus and his disciples are going to the temple in Capernaum. A tax collector some, comes up to the group uh, and says, Hey, does uh, Jesus not going to pay the tax? I get the impression that Jesus wasn't going to pay the tax at first. Because that's probably why the guy was asking, but that's just speculation at this point. I don't, I don't know. One thing we have to realize, though, and here's the, the really key context, this wasn't a Roman tax. This wasn't a everyone must pay this tax. This was actually an Israelite tax charged to Israelites. It was not commanded that you give, but every good Jew was going to pay this tax because it was a temple tax it was specifically for the physical upkeep of the temple and if you're gonna go in there and worship well doggone it you gotta help pay to keep up with it it's kind of like a tithe and offering at this point we don't make you give but it's kind of expected it's told in scripture right it's not like we're gonna go to your check like the government does and just dip it right on out of there that's not the kind of tax that this was so they're approaching the temple and one of the tax collectors very smugly That's how I read it anyway, it doesn't say that, but to me it's like, hey, Jesus is going to pay the tax. And of course, Peter, good old Peter, can't help himself, he's got to say something. Oh yeah, yeah, no, he's totally going to pay that. Once they're alone, Jesus doesn't rebuke Peter, but he does ask him about it. He asks him about the interaction. He asks Peter an obvious question. When a king imposes a tax on people, he is the king over this whole however much land. Who does he charge the tax to? Does he charge it to his family and his sons and his daughters? Or does he take it from others? The obvious answer is no. Why would a king charge his own family just to then give it back to them? It would be me, like me writing a check to my wife for her birthday. One, don't do that, gentlemen. That's free advice. Two, what would be the point? It just goes right back into our account. It'd be like giving it to myself, which actually is a good birthday gift. But that's beside the point. Peter rightly answers the question. For once in his life, Peter got one right. Good old Peter, got one right. I'm I'm sure he gloated about it later. But Jesus commends his answer and says, you are correct, Peter. But if that's true, then the sons are free. They don't pay the tax. The king won't charge them the tax. What we see here is Jesus reminding us what we just heard God say on the mountain. This is my son. This is my temple. Therefore, he doesn't have to pay. Jesus is saying, I own this bad boy. I don't have to pay on this anymore. Now he does later. We'll see, we see that as he sends Peter magically to get the shekel out of the fish. So he does pay the, te- the tax, but he doesn't have to. He already owns the temple. Not only does he own the temple, not only is the temple mine, Jesus is saying, but it was built in the first place to point to me. To point to the one who would allow us into the presence of God. That's what the temple was for, to be in the presence of God. Jesus is saying, I'll take care of that now. You're in my presence. I am God. You don't have to go to a temple anymore. It was built for the one who would tear the veil into that separated the unholy from the holy. But beyond that, Jesus is the true and better temple himself. He is the very presence of God among us. He is the very reconciler that reconciles us back to God. He is the only one that deems us worthy. We must rely our whole weight or lean our whole weight upon him because in him, not in temples made by man, do we convene with the almighty God. He is the true and better high priest. He doesn't have to stand all day offering sacrifices for sin. He gets to offer it once for all sin and then sit at the right hand of God mediating for us between us and God, giving us the ability to be in God's presence. But even further than that, he doesn't just stop there. Notice that Jesus doesn't say, well, then the son is free, so I ain't got to pay this. He says the sons are free. He's taking his sonship that only Jesus has, that only Jesus possesses, that only Jesus deserves, and conferring it onto the disciples and us. He's saying this sonship that I have is now yours. My righteousness is now your righteousness. My holiness is now your holiness. My freedom from sin is now your freedom from sin. My inheritance is now your inheritance. And here's the kicker. My father is now your father. You are now in the family with me. This is a beautiful picture we see here fleshed out. Through almost the rest of Scripture. Paul writes about this over and over and over again. Ephesians 1, 3-5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for what? Adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. We see clearly we are adopted into God's family through what? Through who? Jesus. That is why we must lean our entire weight upon him, because we cannot be adopted, we can't beg God to adopt us enough where he'll do it any other way than the way he has set it up through Jesus Galatians 4, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you were sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. So we again see here that we are no longer slaves to sin, Satan, and death. We are no longer enslaved to the things of this world. We are sons. We are daughters. We are heirs of the promise that only applied to Jesus until he saved us. Romans 8. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For we, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, I have a father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Again, just for good measure, we see clearly stated here, we are heirs, we are sons, we are daughters We are free in Christ. The thing here is there is no distinction made between Jesus and us now. It doesn't say, I've got this one son and then I've got these others that are not quite. It's We are co-heirs with Jesus. Everything that Jesus has, everything that Jesus lived for, all of his perfection, his righteousness, his holiness, his inheritance is now ours. But only because of the object of our faith. This is what we are promised in Scripture. This is what we are promised here by Jesus. The sons are free. We are free. We are God's family. And this is not just so we can get out of paying taxes. As you can see, Jesus doesn't even do that. He goes ahead and pays your taxes. We could have done a whole sermon on the government and all that. It would have been very short. Pay your taxes. Drop the mic. We're done here. That's it. There is no ifs, ands, or buts about it. Jesus is very clear here. Now, as we read these passages in succession from the healing of the demon-oppressed boy to the weird fish story and the shekel in its mouth, paying your taxes, you might be asking the question, just like I did by Wednesday, Thursday, why the heck are we preaching these two things together? (laughs) I'm not sure. We'll we'll see here. (laughs) But as we look at this, we do see an overarching truth it ultimately points us to the true character and nature of God that we see clearly in this passage you see at first we see ourselves represented and identified as a helpless man begging for Jesus to heal his son not by merit not by deserving it not by offering anything in return solely based on the grace and mercy of Jesus and he was healed then the second passage we see ourselves represented as the disciples who are called sons we are now sons of the Most High God we go from wretched and deserving sinner To adopted son and co-heir with Christ. How do we bridge that gap? Faith. It's faith in Jesus. It is the object of our faith that gets us from wretched sinner to son or daughter. Jesus heals this man because he had faith that only Jesus could do so. He had tried other methods and it did not work. Then we see our identities change to family by our faith in Jesus. And I bet everyone in here, if I asked for a raise of hands, would say, I've tried a bunch of other ways. And they did not work. It is only through Jesus. God says mountains can be moved if we have the smallest amount of faith in this Jesus, in the Lord and Savior Jesus. And then we get ushered into God's family. If we read further into Ephesians, it lays it out perfectly. Chapter 2, verse 8. For by grace you have been saved through what faith This is how we are saved. It is through faith. It is faith that we are saved. It is faith that we are brought from death to life. It is by faith that the mountain of our sin can be picked up, taken off of us, and placed onto Jesus because he is the only shoulders broad enough to carry that load. It is by faith that that mountain is moved. And through that same faith, we are given his righteousness that we in no way deserve. We are called sons and daughters through that faith that he gives us. Not because it's enough faith. We don't conjure this up to earn it. But because we have true, lasting, persevering faith in Christ, the object of our faith, the one and only Jesus, the one and only saving Jesus, the one we read about in the inerrant, infallible word of God, this Jesus is who gives us the faith to be called sons and daughters. You see, he is faithful when we are not. It is by his faith that we are deemed perfect. It is through his perfect faith and perfect righteousness that he can then give that to us for us to have perfect faith and perfect righteousness, not the other way around. We are adopted into a family because of his perfection. He alone is worthy. He alone is worthy to be magnified, to be praised, to be loved, to give our lives to. This is the good news of the gospel. We don't have to conjure this faith up. We don't have to just grit our teeth and hold on just a little more tightly. Man, I hope I've got a mustard seed worth of faith today. It is Jesus that holds us. It is Jesus that's perfect faith is counted on our behalf and put into our account. But why? So that God alone gets the glory. Just like we see in all of the things Jesus sent the disciples out to do. So that God alone would be glorified. So as we close this morning, may we... Go from this place. May we live a life of active faith in the Jesus who has purchased our freedom from sin. But he took it a step further and adopted us as sons into his family. May we preach this to ourselves daily. May we live by faith enough to remember what Scripture says about us. May we remember our identities in Christ. When the world comes crashing down around us, when the world tells us that we're not good enough, when the devil tries to lie to us and say, God couldn't forgive you for that, may you look to Jesus and say, He already has. The sons are free. God calls me son. May I believe this more than my feelings that day, more than what the TV tells me, more than what the magazines tell me, more than what culture is going to tell you that you are not good enough or that you are good enough on your own because both are just as deadly. And the truth of the matter is we're not good enough. Jesus makes us good enough. And that is where we place our faith. So may we go from this place and live by faith in the only one truly worthy to remember that He is faithful, not us. He keeps us faithful. May we point a lost and dying world to this Jesus so that as the disciples forgot, may we proclaim the gospel and then fill in the blank. May everything that we do be done in faith to that Jesus so that he may be known in this world. Let us pray. Jesus, I forget this message so often. I think that it is about me. I think that it matters if people think I just preached a good sermon or not. Because I am like the disciples, and I think it is about me and my words, and it is not. May you remind me of that daily. May you remind us of that daily. It is about you, Jesus. The best of us are still despicable in your eyes until Jesus cleans us, until Jesus purchases us, until Jesus adopts us. And may we never forget that it is all about him. May we point ourselves to that truth daily, but may we point a lost and dying world to that daily. May you give us boldness as we proclaim. May we go out with the gifts you have given us to proclaim the gospel and then to exercise those gifts. We thank you for salvation. We thank you for faith. We thank you for your grace that can only be purchased through Jesus. May we give Him all the honor and praise. It's in Jesus' name. Amen.